Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. In 2001, a pregnant 25-year-old woman in Argentina named Luciana Monzon discovered that the fetus she was carrying had a birth defect called anencephaly. The word anencephaly is from Greek, meaning without a brain, and it means that the majority of the brain does not form. The condition is fatal, usually in utero, but sometimes death occurs hours or at most days after birth. Luciana Monson decided that the best course of action was to terminate the pregnancy, but in order to do that, she had to ask for judicial approval. First, one judge and then another excused themselves from dealing with the request, and the case went to the Supreme Court of the region where she lived, which dictated that the first judge should decide. By that time, however, the pregnancy was so advanced that Monson had to take the pregnancy to term. The baby was born spontaneously, weighing barely over one pound, and died 45 minutes after birth. In 2006, also in Argentina, a 19-year-old mentally disabled woman was raped. Four months later, her mother discovered that her daughter was pregnant and went to the public hospital to request an abortion, which was allowed under the provisions of the penal code of the area, which specifically allows abortion in the case of rape against a mentally disabled woman. The ethics committee of the hospital studied the case and gave its approval, but then a judge prohibited the abortion based on personal conviction. The block had to be appealed, and the Supreme Court of Buenos Aires overruled the judge. So keep in mind that every single day that these judges and lawyers and committee members were debating, this real woman's life continued and her pregnancy continued. So by the time the abortion was approved, the physicians at the hospital said that the pregnancy was too advanced. In 2020, you may remember that Argentina was in the news as thousands of women marched in the streets demanding that the government honor their reproductive rights. These women chose green as the color of their movement and the quote-unquote green wave activists eventually won the right for Argentine women to make their own choices regarding their own pregnancies. Green wave activists also achieved the decriminalization of abortion in Colombia and exemption to the abortion ban for cases of rape in Ecuador. And in 2021, the Supreme Court of Mexico issued a unanimous ruling that decriminalized abortion in the country. The chief justice credited Green Wave activists for shifting the national consciousness on the issue, as well as the position of the Mexican Supreme Court, saying it kept getting harder and harder to go against their legitimate demands. Today, we're going to talk about reproductive rights in Latin America. And to help us understand this ongoing struggle, I'm so excited to welcome to the podcast, Natalia Calero. Welcome, Natalia. Hi, Amy. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you share your expertise with us. And I'm wondering if we can start out by you telling us a bit about yourself, where you are from, and your education, and a little bit about the work you do. Yes, of course. I'm Natalia Calero. I'm a Mexican feminist woman. I was born to a Mexican woman and a Spanish father. I've lived almost all my life in Mexico City. I'm so privileged to have access to good education. So I am a lawyer here in Mexico. And I've, I have like 18 years as a public servant in human rights policies. And in the last 
10 to 12 years, I've been working on gender equality. So I was this kind of girl that in high school was reciting Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz poems on feminism. I didn't know exactly what feminism was about. I didn't read like Simone de Beauvoir when I was 14, but I was very convinced that women did not have the same opportunity. So that was a social fight, a social battle that I was thrown to since I was 12 years old. And so the last two years, I quit my job at United Nations and I started a platform that is called Coming Up, which aims to implement evidence-based inclusion and equality policies and improve women's leadership. Fabulous. Can I ask what you were doing at the UN before? Yes, UN Women. I worked as a program manager. I used to be in charge of fighting against violence against women and girls and women in politics. Fabulous. I love this. And I love that you brought up that when you were young, you recited poems by Sor Juana de That's amazing. And I actually never knew who she was until I started this podcast and read all about her and read some of her poetry. And that's so exciting to actually, it's so fun to me to hear that mentioned and and know that she was a part of your growing up and that you knew who she was. Was she taught in school when you were growing up in Mexico City? Yes, not that much as as now, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, women have been invisible through history. But it's true that I was looking for a poem because I used to be part of these contests. And when I read Hombres Necios que acusáis a la mujer sin razón, that's one of the most known poems. I said, this is me, <laughs> even though it was written in the 17th century. I mean, it's so, so relevant now mm-hmm. that it was scary. So I, I used that and I won in my school. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that's, that's so great. I love knowing that. Well, so let's dig into the content that we wanted to talk about today, which is basically the struggle for reproductive rights in Latin America. We began with two stories in Argentina, partly because I know that Argentina has been getting a lot of attention in the last few years because of the green movement. But I know, as I mentioned, it's been a really big deal really recently in Mexico as well. Is that right? Yes. Well, first of all, I would like to say that when we listen to these stories, those are everyday stories for not only Latin American women, but African women, Asian women. And this is patriarchy. Rita Segato, who is an, an Argentinian feminist, says that women's bodies are the first territory to be conquered by men. So we're really talking about the autonomy, because of course, if men were the ones who got pregnant, we wouldn't have been having this conversation. So, of course, all these battles, social battles, sexual and reproductive rights are dated from the 60s, the 70s. But here in Mexico in 2007, in Mexico City specifically, because as in the U.S., these are local issues. These issues are managed in a local way. In Mexico City, there was a change in the penal code that allowed women to have abortion with no penalty the first 12 weeks. And that was the first time we had in that time Marcelo Ebrard as a governor here in Mexico City. 
he names himself as a feminist. And he was surrounded by women such as Leticia Bonifaz, who was the legal head of his team, that really pushed to have this decriminalization on the first 12 weeks. And that was, I guess, the first great moment in legislative history for Mexico. After that, there was a constitutional pledge that was presented to the Supreme Court in 2008, decriminalization, but also the health rule was modified in order for women to have access in public hospitals to this service. Because it, it was not only, like in the U.S. in the 70s, the, the permission to have an abortion, but also as a public policy, giving the space to have that. Because, you know, women, and I'm going to say this very clearly, middle-income women have always had the opportunity to have an abortion, a safe abortion. And it was not the case for, for poor women. I'd love you to develop that a little more for maybe listeners who haven't really thought about why that would be the case. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit more? Like why have middle-class and upper-class women always had access to abortions, even when it's illegal? The rich ones had the opportunity to travel to the U.S. And okay. there were some doctors, renowned doctors, that really believed in this autonomy and that gave the opportunity for women to have an abortion. You know that, fortunately... <laughs> abortion has changed over time. So now you can have a safe access to abortion with some pills. It was not, it depends on the, on the week that you are on your pregnancy, but in general, it's easier than before. But there were some doctors that, of course, it was not legal, but it was a very safe procedure. But it was costly because of the risk they were facing. And poor women didn't have that access. And those women were the ones that were really stretched because of financial needs, because they didn't have access to public health and public education. So it became much more difficult for them. And th that's something I want to talk about later, because in this access to, to reproductive rights, as in all women's rights, you will always see this intersection on being poor, being in, an indigenous women, and how difficult it, it is for some populations to have access to this right. Going back to Mexico City's history, so we had some women from all over the country coming to the city to have these safe abortion procedures. But it took almost 11 years for another state to decriminalize abortion because what happened after the Supreme Court ruled that it was not unconstitutional, what happened is that some states changed their constitution in order to protect life from conception, like an obstacle for these women to, to exercise their reproductive rights. And another thing that I, I really want to say is that when we talk about reproductive rights, of course, abortion is, is one of the, the most known ones. But we're talking about also obstetric violence. We're also talking about maternal death. That was one of the millennium objectives that Mexico didn't reach in 2015. 
We're talking also about how reproductive rights have a relation with our professional development, maternity leave, and all the, the rights related to labor rights. And of course, we're talking about assisted reproduction. So it's true that abortion always comes to mind when we're talking about reproductive rights, but we're really talking about all these rights that are part of reproductive health and that we could see that in the pandemic, those were the rights where the public health system took away the resources, of course, to face the COVID agenda, but it was the first part of the budget that suffered because they are not considered as important for, for women. Can I ask you about some of those other health concerns that you just listed? One that stuck out to me was obstetric violence. What's meant by that phrase? Obstetric violence is all the violence that a woman faces in all the pregnancy and post-pregnancy period. What kind of, of violence? For example, being gaslighted by their doctors, like, no, you don't, you are not feeling this. No, you're being exaggerated. Also, for example, here in Mexico, being forced to be immobilized, immobilized when you are giving birth, that is a oh, like tie, tied. they still tie people to yes. bed. Yes. Oh gosh, like by arms and yeah, legs. Yeah, not to move. That it, that was pretty common in public hospitals. For listeners who can't see, because Natalia and I are looking at each other, she was gesturing to her wrists. So you're tied. Not only are your feet up in stirrups, but you're actually tied by your wrists. Exactly, to the bed. And And you cannot move. To the bed. And you cannot move. (gasps) And that was a a usual practice in public hospitals. It's, for example, the violence that indigenous women face and not having the capacity to decide whether they want to have or not an epidural. You say that in English, epidural? Yeah, epidural, epidural. yes, epidural, um, yes. And yes. not giving you the options or, or options to decide. That is a whole range of violence, of obstetric violence. And of course, it's worst when it's faced by indigenous women, not because they are poor or because it's not always the case, but because they are treated in some, in some hospitals that do not respect their beliefs or that they don't treat them well. And those are cases that have been taken by the civil society organizations and that have gone through all this judicial system. And there have been some rulings that recognize what obstetric violence is. And of course, we have in these last 15 years have some new norms in order for women to have safer pregnancies. Maternal death, That is closely linked to poverty because those are, in general, in a a very large percentage, deaths that can be prevented. And of course, when you are poor, when you don't have access to public health, when you, you are an indigenous woman and you don't speak Spanish, that becomes much more difficult. So there are a lot of people that prefer not to go to a hospital and of course, that that have some risks related to hygiene, security processes that are regular in a hospital. I think that it's important to understand that we do have an indigenous population in each country. I mean, of course, 
you have some countries like Argentina, like Uruguay, that don't have these big populations because of historic reasons. They they didn't have this, in Spanish it's called mestizaje, race mixing, that you did have in Venezuela, Colombia, all Central America, some part of Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Guatemala, etc. So, for example, here in Mexico, just to give you some statistics, 10% of the population, more or less, identify themselves as indigenous. So you really have to take into consideration, because you're talking about 10% of the population, the ones that were here when Spanish people arrived, they haven't had access to all not all the services, uh, but also their rights, human rights. So we really have to implement this intersectional lens that gives you the opportunity to see how they have lived in a different way, the access to all the public services that people that are not indigenous have regular access to, like education, health, work, job opportunities, housing. And of course, they haven't had, because of discrimination, this uh, full access to their human rights. I do have to say, too, that the United States, I was just reading again, I mean, I've heard this, this statistic quote, and I was just, it was just affirmed again, that United States, I think, is the lowest on the list of developed countries in terms of maternal health. Like, we have the highest maternal death rate of the developed world. So it's an issue for us here too. Also discrimination and racism for for women going in to receive any kind of medical care is such an issue for us here too. So I, I mean, I just have a lot of empathy and can really relate. What's the other thing that you mentioned? Oh yeah. When you say, oh, medical paternalism, that's what we yeah. call it here. When you talk obstetric yeah. violence and like male doctors, especially sometimes female doctors too, just kind of having a condescending attitude and gaslighting and and not believing their patients. I know it's different from country to country, but I I wish it were better for all of us. And the United States has such a long way to go as well. Yes, because I mean, what I find not crazy, but it's like a cognitive dissonance all the time, is that maternity is always romanticized, like a mother is the best thing that you can experience in life, but you don't have the public support to really have healthy maternity. So these are the things that we have been fighting for. And of course, there is always a conservative agenda that we have seen arise here in Latin America since 15 years ago, that believes that women should not decide over their bodies. And that, of course, is an agenda that is very well budgeted. So we have these anti-rights movements that want to go backwards. And when you work in human rights, one of the principles is progression, that once you have achieved Mm -hmm. something, you cannot go backwards. And Mm. that sounds Good, but it's not true because you see, for example, in the U.S., going backwards in women's rights, that is really a concern because, I mean, we're talking about human rights here. And, you know, this CEDAW, that is a convention against women discrimination, have already said, and not only in the general recommendations, but also in the observations to each country, 
that having access to abortion, to safe abortion, is a human right. And not only on violation cases and rape cases, which is, for example, in Mexico, if you were raped, you you are not punished for having an abortion. But we're talking here about full autonomy. I mean, deciding over my body when and where I want to exercise maternity or not. Okay, well, I'd love to bring up a couple of other issues. One thing that I read is that in Latin America, there is quite a high rate of teenage pregnancy. I read that 38% of women become pregnant before the age of 20. I mean, Latin America is a gigantic place. So, I mean, this is an average that takes in a lot of very, very diverse areas. But still, that is an astoundingly distressingly high rate. So almost 20% of births in Latin America are to teenage mothers. And I was just reflecting on what that means, you know, on a micro level, the personal level of what that means for each one of those young women. And then also the huge cost to society, right? If you have a teenage mom who then can't finish school, and then often that traps that woman in a in a cycle of poverty for the rest of her life, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Exactly. And of course, you have to 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 really see each country's data. But here in Mexico, that's one of the scariest data that we have because we did have a backlash in this issue between 2007 and 2015, more or less. It has to do with a conservative point of view of the government. That government didn't want to talk about pregnancy. But of course, you need information. You need education. You need public access to contraceptives. You need science. And those are things that in a Catholic society, it's hard to talk about. Not only because of patriarchy, but because of religion, because of uh, other systems of oppression. And the problem is that, of course, if you have this number that affects women specifically, that young pregnancies, as you said, impact their right to education, their right to work, and all the rights that are related to working conditions like housing, public health, like social security that we have here in Mexico. And when you see the statistics, not of young women, but in general, 66% of women that work outside their homes, they do it in an informal market. That means that 66% Mm -hmm. of women that work in Mexico don't have access to public health to housing, to maternity leave, to pension. So they are in a very precarious situation. Imagine when you're younger and you depend on your family. So that's where also violence occurs. They are trapped. And there are no public programs to help these women. And you need resources to do that. And that is also linked to a national caring system. Because care, all the the labor care that is done in Mexico, 
I'm not going to say that it's only made by women, but women make like, like 2.6 times uh, the labor work, the care work. So we need to talk also about a public solution on caring for people, not only kids, but people with disabilities, elder people that women are doing and that also that also is a, an obstacle for them to exercise other rights that is very linked to to maternity issues mm-hmm. the the thing that's coming to my mind as you're talking is the movie roma did you see yeah. that film if listeners haven't seen that movie i highly recommend watching it it, it takes place in mexico city doesn't yes. it? yes And it's on, on domestic workers. That is something that some countries like the U.S. might not be so familiar with. But here in Latin America, not in Europe, not in U.S., in Latin America and in Asia, we do rely on these women. To and, and Of course, they are underpaid. They don't have rights. I mean, that is a whole podcast chapter <laughs> on women yeah, yeah, and domestic sure. workers yeah yeah but she, I mean just to the point of like a lot of the things that you were just talking about she's an indigenous young woman and also just the patriarchal dynamics right of her she's dating this guy and she's just so timid in that relationship and he kind of acts like he loves her kind of convinces her to have sex with him and tells her it's you know all gonna be okay and then she gets pregnant And he's out of there. He's like, he specifically tells like, never talk to me again. Don't come by my work again. And she's got to be a teenager, like 16 or 17 years old or something, but a domestic worker, right? And so are, this is the population that you're talking about that she's maybe paid just directly in cash by a family. And so she doesn't have any recourse if that family's like, you're pregnant now, you can't care for our kids. She's a care worker for this upper class family's kids. She's completely vulnerable in society. There's no safety net for her. If they were to fire her because she's pregnant, she would be left really destitute. I mean, that's not what happens. You have to watch the movie to see what happens. But I was just thinking of this poor girl, right? Like in that exact situation that she's impregnated by a guy who can just walk away. And then if she can't get an abortion, you know, and she can't make that decision for herself, what is she going to do? She'll be homeless. Yeah, and she and will be trapped. <laughs> in, uh, she has no, it, it seems like she has no autonomy to decide for her own future. And that's the point. These, all, uh, these conservative agendas that put a lot of pressure on women to have kids. It's like, what are yeah. you doing to care for those kids once they are born? Because those kids don't have access to education like in a systematic way. And what is the role that men play in all this? Because, you know, for example, in Mexico, one third of the families are of a single parent mm -hmm. that is a woman. Mm -hmm. And we have all this social permission for men to not be part of their lives of the kids. So they, like in the film, they just disappear And of course, that is an extra load for the woman. It's like all the consequences of raising a new generation are just for women. And when you don't have access to public health, to maternity leave, to a, a, a safe place to raise those kids, it's kind of 
a trap for women and their children. Yeah. On this topic of kind of the conservatism that I imagine does come from the Catholic Church, you you mentioned that, but Latin America is still so very Catholic. And um, I wanted to read some statistic that I was researching where it says that Latin America is home to some of the few countries in the world with a complete ban on abortion without an exception, even for saving maternal life. So those countries are El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and Honduras, that in these countries, abortions still happen. Of course, they still happen at high rates, but they're just performed in secret, often in unsafe circumstances. And then in some of these countries, these strict abortion laws are accompanied by really strict punishments. So in El Salvador, for example, a woman can be tried for manslaughter and jailed for up to 40 years for an abortion. And and actually, this punishment doesn't even take into consideration the cause of the pregnancy, such as rape, or sometimes it doesn't even take into account that it can be a miscarriage and women are punished and accused of having an abortion when it's actually a miscarriage. Can you speak to that a bit, Natalia? I, I believe from what some things I was reading is that that used to be the case in Mexico as well, that there were extremely harsh yeah. punishments for, for illegal abortion. Exactly. And first of all, just telling you that it's not only some countries in Latin America, but since this is a local thing, there are five uh -huh. states here in Mexico that still don't have the danger of maternal death in the penal code. So that's that situation. You can find it even here in some states. So it's a horrible <laughs> scenario. I actually have a question about that. So does that mean, okay, so the, in the United States, like you said, it does vary state by state. Mm -hmm. Is that the same case in Mexico? So for example, if I live in a state in Mexico and I become pregnant and... I will die if I carry that pregnancy to term. There are states in Mexico where I still would not have the... Access to abortion. Action. Wow. So then would I have to travel to a different state in Mexico? Exactly. So, okay. and imagine if you live very far away from a state that provides that service, the cost that you have to go through in order to, to have access to that human right. Because we're not talking about... Like, I prefer strawberries over that. I, I, we're talking about human rights. And yes, that's, that's the case in Mexico. I don't want to be pessimistic here. We first of all have to thank civil society organizations, women's movement that have been pushing this since the 1970s. And of course, it has been a legislative effort, judicial effort. And what we were talking about before is that, of course, we have had these organizations that have helped women to get out of jail because of abortions. So let's say, again, that I live in a state that doesn't allow abortion even to save the life of the mother. I find myself pregnant. I don't have the resources to travel to a different state. That's too expensive. I can't take time off work. I don't have money for gas. Where would I stay once I'm there? How would I pay for the abortion? Like, it's just too expensive. I literally don't have the money. And I will die if I have this pregnancy and carry to term. And so I do have an illegal abortion. Are you saying that I could be prosecuted by the state and go to jail in Mexico today? Yes, 
Yes, we do have some cases of, in general, poor women that have been prosecuted. And of course, being part of the penal procedure is so complex here in Mexico that you need to have a lawyer and a lawyer costs. So these civil society organizations do have free advice and they have helped women to get out of jail because of this. When you have so little budgets for justice procurement, do you really want to put women in jail with all the problems that you have here in the country? I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't punish crime, but we really need to think that that is not a crime anymore. That, as I said already, that is considered in international law as a human right. So why don't we take all these resources to really make all the necessary policies for women to take control over their bodies in order for them to really give society what they are capable of? It just brings it home to me, too, as you're talking about, I mean, really through the whole episode, in terms of like a woman can't do this and in this she can do this but not this and and just at the root of this the issue and why we're talking about it on a podcast about patriarchy is because the vast majority of the people in the rooms who are deciding these laws and these policies are all men and they're deciding what will happen literally in a woman's own body and and to me that is just the root of the injustice is just that men would presume that they would have the right to be able to make the choice about someone. I mean, I know it's basic and that's, no, yeah. but it just is striking me again and again that the legislative branch and the judicial branch and the executive branch of government and the healthcare professionals and the religious leaders, all the people who are saying, what should we do about women's bodies and their reproduction? They're all men. It's just not, like, how are we accepting this? It's like the system. Exactly. That- uh, there are men and some women that, that, act, <laughs> no, that, that act under this structural patriarchy. And yes. that's why patriarchy is a structural. It's not an individual thing. Yeah. And they work through all these religious or conservative ideas. And that's why I told you before, if men were the ones who got pregnant, we wouldn't have been having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, Natalia, this has been such a fabulous conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to share with listeners? Just like, we really have to see this as part of all other rights that women don't have access to in equal situation as men. And it gets worse when you're talking about some specific women groups like LGBT, indigenous women, poor women, and that in order for us to have a, a better society, we have to guarantee their rights. And the first basic right is the right that we have to do whatever we want with our body. We really have to understand how women are the ones that know what to do with their bodies. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Natalia Calero, for being here today. I so enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Amy. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on breaking down patriarchy.